0: This Cap Times podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Coligard. Learn more at exactsciences.com.
1: Welcome to live from the Cap Times Idea Fest. This is a podcast bringing you some of the conversations from 2019's Idea Fest, a two-day event at UW-Madison that brought together politicians, artists, activists, community leaders, and others to talk about big issues shaping our community, our state, and beyond. Today, the First Amendment, government authority, and nuclear weapons. In 1979, the Progressive magazine gained national attention as the defendant in a lawsuit brought by the U.S. government seeking to prevent the magazine from publishing the, quote, secret of the hydrogen bomb, though all the information was already publicly available. Bill Leaders, editor of the Progressive, spoke with key people involved in the article about the lessons to be learned from their experience. The panel included Howard Moreland, the journalist who wrote the article, Mike Konopaki, a cartoonist who at the time drew editorial cartoons for Strike newspaper, the Madison Press Connection. Frank Turkheimer, the government's attorney in the case. And Brady Williamson, one of the attorneys who represented the Progressive. I'll let Bill Leaders take it from here.
2: Uh, My name is Bill Leaders. I'm the editor of the Progressive magazine. I welcome you all to uh, this panel discussion. Um, I would like to thank the Capital Times for sponsoring this event, particularly Chris Murphy who did a lot of the behind-the-scenes work, and I'd like to give a special thanks to Norm Stockwell, the publisher of The Progressive, who, who did the real heavy lifting to make this event possible. I think we should give them all a big hand. It was Norm who uh, put together uh, this booklet which is really lovely that is available up front as many as you want just help yourself to these these wonderful handouts Norm also oversaw the production of the beautiful banner that's up front take a good look at that how cool that is Um, I helped him a little with the wording but he took charge of that task, and uh, I'm very grateful for that this month uh, marks the 40th anniversary of the conclusion of the progressives H-bomb case which was a historic First Amendment battle that played out right here in Madison. It was the first time in US history that the government censured a publication on national security grounds. It had tried to do so earlier that same decade, uh, in, in the early 1970s, was the Washington Post and the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers case. It was unsuccessful there. At the end of the decade, in 1979, it tried again with the Progressive and, uh, and its article on, uh, on H-bomb design. For six months and 19 days, the Progressive was prohibited under the 1954 Atomic Energy Act from publishing or otherwise disclosing the contents of an article which had been written by a freelance writer named Howard Moreland dealing with a key concept of hydrogen bomb design. The um, action of the courts thrust the magazine into the national limelight, uh, at first in an often uh, harsh light. At one point, David Brinkley, uh, the anchor of the NBC Evening News, told his audience that the magazine wanted to print instructions for, quote, anyone who might like to build a hydrogen bomb in his garage. Well, good luck with that. Um, As uh, the biographer of Irwin Noll, I wrote the the book on Irwin Noll, which has five chapters on the H-bomb case. The article in this pamphlet is a distillation of that. It's about a tenth of the size of the uh, telling of the H-bomb case that happens in this book. I have a bunch of copies if, if anyone wants it for a $10 donation to the Progressive. Uh, you're welcome to it. If you really can't afford it, I'll give you one. Uh, please come up and, and help me distribute some of these to the world. Uh, as Erwin Knowles biographer, I'd like to make just a couple points on his behalf about the H bomb story. Uh, first of all, the real secret of the H bomb is that there was no secret that there was no concept that uh, needed protection uh, and for that reason no one should be able to talk about uh, H-bombs and how they were designed. The real purpose of official secrecy around nuclear weapons was to suppress discussion and dissent and the imposition of this notion that somehow we had to prevent others from finding out how to build our bombs uh, by not ever talking about uh, nuclear weapons was responsible, Irwin believed, for um, much of the repression, the spy scares, the witch hunts, the loyalty purges that had confounded progressive progress in Cold War America. Progressive magazine set out to boldly challenge this secrecy secrecy mystique, uh, and to a large extent it succeeded. What happened here is that the entire weight and might of the United States government was brought to bear against a tiny political magazine in Madison, Wisconsin, and the magazine won. This is what the progressive H-bomb case is about. In the end, the government was forced to back down, the progressive was able to publish, and no harm was done to our national security. But to this day, the case remains steeped in misunderstandings, some generated deliberately by government, uh, some by the media. All of those misunderstandings we hope and expect to clear up today. Our panelists are Howard Moreland, the author of the article, a former US Air Air Force pilot and a longtime peace activist. Uh, Frank Turkheimer, a former Watergate prosecutor who worked in the US Attorney's Office in Madison when the government brought its prosecution against the magazine. Brady Williamson, a longtime Madison lawyer, constitutional and corporate litigator who was among the attorneys who represented the progressive after the U.S. government moved to suppress publication, and Mike Konopacki, Madison's premier political cartoonist and a staff member at the Madison Press Connection strike newspaper during the H-bomb case. Let's start with Howard Moreland on how and why the story was written. Okay,
3: Uh, thank you. Can everybody hear me? Um, First of all, the article was harmless as evidenced by the lack of bad consequences in 40 years. I have often been asked, what was the point? Why does anybody need to know the H-bomb secret? In five minutes, I'll try to give two short answers, one esoteric and one practical. Okay. I first learned that there was an H-bomb secret from this 1976 book by Herbert York, called The Advisors, Oppenheimer, Teller, and the Superbomb. It's a story behind President Truman's decision in 1950 to go ahead with the H-bomb project, resulting in a doomsday machine which could kill us all today. J. Robert Oppenheimer, who's often characterized as a dove in this story, advised against the H-bomb program. Edward Teller said to do it. There are two interesting statements in York's introduction here. Page 8, he says, there is one truly central technological fact that remains secret, the precise nature of the Teller-Ulam invention of 1951. From the point of view of understanding what happened, it is less than ideal to omit it, end of quote. In other words, in 1976, there was still a secret. And page 10, quote, the argument was between hawks and superhawks no full-fledged doves or members of the arms control school were involved for the simple reason that none of them had the necessary clearances, end of quote. In other words, the mechanism for protecting the secret also skewed the debate in a hawkish direction. Um, A major thread of York's story is that Oppenheimer did not actually oppose all H-bombs. He proposed a bomb design called the Booster, which was different from Teller's on the theory that Teller's super bomb design would not work. And he was right about that. As soon as Teller presented a workable design in 1951, Oppenheimer was all for it. If you understand the various design proposals, you can see that Oppenheimer was constantly promoting whatever design gave the U.S. arsenal its greatest destructive power. Oppenheimer actually had more in common with Teller than he had with the genuine arms control advocates, a fact which I think is worth knowing. Uh, I explained the missing pieces of York's story in this 2005 Cardozo Law Review article, uh, which was written as part of the 25-year anniversary symposium that Frank Turkheimer organized at the Cardozo Law School. So if you read these two books together, you get the whole story. So that was reason number one, a better understanding of history. Now, the practical reason is on May day of 1977, I joined the Big Clamshell Alliance demonstration on the construction site of the Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant in New Hampshire. It happens that this grassroots anti-nuclear movement was using Harvey Wa- Wasserman's articles in the Progressive Magazine as a kind of newsletter. I talked with several other demonstrators who wondered What would it take to expand the scope of this new anti-nuclear movement to include the bomb as well as the power reactor? I thought, the Progressive magazine needs a Harvey Washerman for the bomb. Turns out I became that guy. My overall goal was to make the bomb seem real and concrete. I wanted peace activists to feel confident enough to confront the experts who said, this is none of your business. Trust us, if you knew what we know, you would know we're right, etc. Uh, in those days, the nuclear weapon assembly line was still running. Each essential corp- component was made in a special, a separate specialized factory and sent to Amarillo, Texas for final assembly. In order to paint a portrait of the industry, I needed to know what those essential components were, what was in them, how they contributed to the final product. This, of course, adds up to the H-bomb secret. Uh, Now, the model over here uh, I used as a stage prop in a uh, lecture tour that went on for most of the 1980s. I I spoke at at least 200 colleges and uh, community organizations, carried this thing with me, took that uh, model to England and went all over England and Scotland, uh, driving in a, a borrowed sports car that that box has been everywhere with the thing it just went on the airline occasionally somebody would ask me what's in it and I would say it's a stage prop and they would, it that's full size by the way that warhead represents a full-size nuclear uh, warhead that would be about 20 30 times p- more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb because the H-bomb is more efficient than the the pure fission bomb. It's all explained in in various things. Um, But turns out uh, in the process of laying out this sort of map for the activists to use in opposing the bomb, we ran into censorship, and uh, the government decided to make a federal case out of it, and that really was the best thing that ever happened because we got six months of free publicity, and by the end, when we won, <clears throat> we had made the point uh, to Americans and all around the world that it's okay for for peace activists to confront the experts and 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 say, "Look, we know what you're doing. We don't like it. Stop it." Uh, And until we established that with the progressive case, it was uh, not—people like, for instance, Ralph Nader said, we can attack the nuclear power plant. We can't attack the bomb because then you get into patriotism and anti-communism and all that stuff. We sort of laid that to rest and opened it up and and laid the groundwork for the nuclear weapon freeze campaign, which was— the manifestation of the expanded anti-nuclear movement. There you go.
2: Thank you, Howard. Next, Frank Turkheimer, please tell us about the government's decision to prosecute, which you came to oppose.
4: Well, it was late on a Thursday when three lawyers from the Justice Department came to my office here in Madison and said, we have to get an injunction against Progressive Magazine. They are about to publish the secret of the H-bomb. The case was that they were going to ask for a temporary restraining order before Judge Doyle. Uh, They obviously gave me the option of making the argument. Uh, I decided that in an hour that they would brief me, I would not be able to answer Judge Doyle's questions. I was sure that he would ask many, many questions before issuing a temporary restraining order against the press. I said, look, you guys have been working on this for weeks. You do it. Well, it turned out that Judge Doyle recused himself because he'd been on the board of the Progressive, and the, the, the argument was set before Judge Warren the following Friday morning in Milwaukee. Uh, I didn't go. I thought, don't well, I maybe I should read this article. And the way it worked was the, a censor in the Department of Energy had put boxes around what he said was restricted data, uh, and he swore that that was not in the public domain and that it's coming to the public domain would injure the United States. There were three affidavits that supported this motion from injunction. Secretary of Defense, Secretary of Energy, Secretary of State, all said that it would seriously hamper our efforts at avoiding the proliferation of thermonuclear technology. And so, and so the combination of this affidavit by the person in the Department of Energy these three affidavits and the nature of the Atomic Energy Act formed the basis of the government's position. That Friday morning, I sat in my office and I started to read the article. And I have to say that I was astonished is an understatement because I saw things in the, box, the sensors boxes that were marked as restricted data that I knew as a kid interested in atomic energy 25 years earlier. I could not believe it. An example of one of the things that was marked as restricted data was that you you can't just take hydrogen, two hydrogen isotopes, stick them together and get an explosion. It takes enormous energy to fuse these hydrogen isotopes because the the, the nucleus of an atom is, is positively charged and there's energy around it. And there's only one thing on Earth, that at least at that time, that could start the process off by which these hydrogen isotopes come together. And that's what we call an atom bomb, or more precisely, a fission bomb. So, And I mean that. And there it was marked as restricted data. And there were other things like it. I drove to Milwaukee, just got there, just as so the government was successful in Judge Warren to issue a temporary restraining order. And along comes Mr. Cheer to say to these guys, three guys who were very pleased and were I'm happy, I said, you know, there's, there's some serious flaws in this case, because your censor doesn't know what he's doing, doesn't know what he's talking about. And they have kind of listened to me, but didn't listen to me. I can understand that. I'm just a lawyer from Madison. They've got the whole establishment on their side. So what I did was, over the weekend, I went to the, the physics library here at the university. And I had a made, made a mental note of like eight or nine things that I knew were in the public domain. And I found virtually all of them. And one of them, ironically enough, was a publication by, by the government of India. Now that's really important, because you, you needed an industrial base to build an H-bomb. You, you couldn't do it in the garage. And Idi Amin couldn't do it, As Judge Warren said, I wouldn't want Idi Amin to have an H-bomb. That was ridiculous. You needed an industrialized country. And India was one of those. And here I had a publication by the government of India, which said exactly the things that the censor said was restricted data. So I I took these seven or eight things, I copied them from the physics library, and I sent them to Washington. And basically from that point on, uh, my role in the case was zero. Uh, didn't sign the briefs after a while, and I made a very conscientious effort of trying to to get the department to drop the case, uh, which I, under the five minute quota that I'm under, I really can't get into now, but if anybody's interested, I'll be happy to talk about those efforts. But as far as I was concerned, this was a seriously, seriously fought case, and I, I thought it was inexcusable that the department would go along with us without trying to double-check their censor, who said this is all restricted data and it's not in the public domain.
2: Thank you, Frank. Brady Williamson, tell us about defending the Progressive Magazine in court. I'll do that,
5: but I also thought I'd undertake a bit of a discussion of the case's legacy, Uh, not so much historical as in Mm Hunter's case, but, but legal and I'll start with a few personal recollections. Uh, I was a very young lawyer in a small but somewhat storied Madison law firm. Um, I point out that I was walking in the door of the law firm as Shirley Abrahamson was walking out, having just been appointed uh, to the state Supreme Court. Notice. I didn't say I replaced her,
0: <laughs> we can.
5: So let me make four quick points. Two are personal and anecdotal and might seem a bit amusing in the hindsight of 40 years. And two are very much relevant today. Uh, the first is, it was the first and only time um, I've had to store documents related to a case in a safe. <coughs> And the safe, we were told, was provided courtesy of the FBI and it was wired, so we were told, to the FBI office. Now, in reality, it might have simply been wired to the socket. (laughs) (laughs) It was also the only case where I had to get a security clearance to work on the case. And in this particular case, it was called not top secret or secret it was called a q clearance and when you learned more you learned that a Q clearance was uniquely related to nuclear energy nuclear research and nuclear weapons the other unique thing was it was the only case where i knew more than the client and that was very uncomfortable now anybody that's worked with lawyers would know that most clients know more than most lawyers about whatever the issue is. But it's very uncomfortable to know things that are integral to the case that couldn't be shared with Howard, Irwin, or anyone else that we were representing uh, in court. And, and that's very disconcerting. Uh, it's also Marginally unethical, I think, if you looked at the rules of professional conduct. But in this case, we have no choice. So let me end these few minutes talking a bit about the, the legal legacy of the case. And there is still a shadow that it casts. Howard and Frank both talked a bit about the Atomic Energy Act, uh, but there was a literal threat of prosecution. Under the Espionage Act of 1917. And I say of 1917 because that tells you uh, what time it was enacted and with what frame of reference. But the Espionage Act of 1917 is still the law today. And uh without getting into an arcane discussion about who is a journalist and who is not. Uh, Several people whose names you're familiar with, like Assange and others, uh, are either under indictment or being threatened with indictment under this um, Espionage Act, uh, which is now even older than the Progressive magazine case. If anybody wants to look, it's in 18 US code. And it applies to knowledge lawfully gained, which makes Frank's point or unlawfully gained that is distributed. And by the way, Howard, the law includes sketches, if you recall it, that distributes that with the uh, suspicion or knowledge that it might advantage another country. So that's, that's the law today. That's a legacy that really still lives. And if you're a reporter reporting on national security issues, it's something that that you, you absolutely have to be aware of. Now, the government did get a temporary restraining order against the publication of the article, short term. That almost certainly would never happen today because of the internet. The Progressive Magazine had to get Howard's story, the illustrations that accompanied it, and get it printed somewhere. Um, so the government was able to, when I say able, I don't mean just le- legally, I mean literally, physically, permit the publication. And one of the cases that we talked about endlessly uh, in the courtrooms, uh, not just in Milwaukee, but in Chicago, was a case called Near versus Minnesota which was about the restraint of a a weekly newspaper in Minneapolis under a nuisance law. That was 1931. The Supreme Court struck down that. Then you have the Pentagon Papers case, of course, in 1971, which again said no prior restraint except, and I still today find this quaint in today's context, except if you were going to publish something About the sailing date of troop ships, (laughs) and of course now, uh, forget government satellites and surveillance. uh, Nobody's sailing anywhere, not even Frank's little sloop on Lake Mendota, (laughs) uh, without somebody knowing about it. So there's no uh, the the analogy uh, has become an anachronism. But the the shadow that's still cast by government threats um, is very real. And I think, as as Howard said, that the case still stands for a great deal in terms of the ability of journalists and, derivatively, citizens to stand up to government uh, in terms of conveying information of public interest.
0: This podcast is brought to you by Exact Sciences. Join the Madison-based team working to lead earlier cancer detection. Visit exactsciences.com to view the company's hundreds of open jobs.
2: So let me set up uh, Mike by saying that the central secret was uh, how a hydrogen bomb directed, uh, how a nuclear atomic blast directed energy in a way refracted against it, compressed it, and created this larger e- explosion. This was the concept that the government claimed was uh, uh, was too secret to be shared or discussed. So after the government enjoined the progressive from publishing, uh, researchers around the country began pointing out that this really wasn't such a huge secret, that one of the inventors of the um, of the this discovery had published a diagram that disclosed much of it in the Encyclopedia Britannica, I believe. Um, others came and, and independently discovered the nature of this secret. There's a reporter named um, uh, Joe Manning at the Milwaukee Sentinel who, uh, who discovered it on his own and other people came forward with it. Um, and the government kept um, Seeing others come up with this information and saying you can't do that, that's classified. And that became the, this huge game of whack a mole uh, by the US government trying to stop the secret from coming out here and coming out here and coming out here. There's an independent nuclear buff named Charles Hansen out of California who uh, mined the secret and was appalled by the uh, insistence that this was some sort of, you know, threat to the national security of the United States, who wrote a letter to a U.S. senator, you know, laying this out. And that letter came into the possession of some media outlets. The government, when it became aware of it, classified that letter, uh, played its whack-a-mole down on it. uh, But that was not the end of the story. Mike, tell us what happened.
6: Okay, thanks a lot. Um, I hesitate to be the spokesperson for the Press Connection because in 1978, I was a 28-year-old, or in 1979, I was a 28-year-old political cartoonist who drove a school bus part-time for Madison Metro and drew cartoons in between my morning shift and my afternoon shift. So I got a call on Saturday, uh, September's... 15th, saying you got to come down to the office because we're publishing an extra, and you got to draw a cartoon in two hours. And I had never done that before because I always had a little bit more lead time, and so um, it, it it was it became really exciting because once I got there, the whole office was a buzz and people were running around and they were frantically trying to get this eight-page paper done. And I'm sitting at my drawing board trying to come up with an idea, and then I finally get it, and I get it to the up uh, to the uh, um, photographer, and they start putting everything together. And when we were done, we piled into uh, a big white van that was owned by Verna Hill, who was our, our business manager at the Press Connection. We piled into the van, drove to Stoughton, put the uh, plates on the on the press. Ran off 8,000 copies of the paper. They bundled them. We threw them all back into the van. And now we're driving down the highway in the middle of the night, and we're all like, oh, my God, you know, I, I hope we don't, we're not the, uh, um, the, the Sterling Hall bombers or something. I mean, this whole thing was just getting to be really kind of scary and exciting at the same time. We got to the square, and we dumped the bundles in front of the drugstores. Back then they were rent bombs and because they would pick up the press connection and sell them uh, on, in the counter. So all we had to do is get the newspapers on the, on the street. And then after that, we'd have to wait and see what happened. And so I went home at 5 in the morning. And um, my wife is pregnant. Two weeks later, she gives birth. And um, she's saying, where the hell were you? <laughs> and so then the next day, all hell breaks loose. But the key thing to this is that the Press Connection was uniquely situated to be a part of the story. Because when we published the Hansen letter, now the progressive had the permission to to print the H-bomb story. And the Press Connection, for those of you who would remember, was started by the workers at Madison News Papers, Incorporated which printed the Capital Times and the State Journal. And the the, uh, production unions were being forced to take massive concessions and uh, pay cuts to transfer from what was called hot type to computer uh, typesetting, which was called cold type. And so they demanded these huge concessions. So the production unions went out on strike, and the Wisconsin State Journal Editorial Association and the newspaper guild, six, Local 64, that represented the workers at the Cap Times, went out in, in uh, sympathy to the strikers. They refused to cross the picket line. And this is October of 1977. Um, then they started publishing a weekly paper called The Press Connection, and it was printed on sun- for Sunday, and it was, they had a campaign to boycott MI papers and their campaign was called never on sunday and so you would always get the press connection instead of the state journal in early 1978 it be- the press connection became a cause celeb uh, people were contributing they were subscribing and they decided to go daily so we printed 6 days a week uh, monday through saturday and in august of 78 i start submitting political cartoons, and when I found out that I could do local cartoons, I would do one every day. They didn't expect it, but I thought I'm gonna make the best of this opportunity. So I wasn't involved in any of the decision making as to whether or not to print the, uh, the Hanson letter, but Bob Mong, who was the city editor, got a tip that the, press, that the progressive had this story and that they were going to print it. And they were all excited, and they were going to print that scoop, but they got scooped by the Daily Cardinal. But then everything started building up and building up, and as Bill uh, described, the government started finding out that there were all these papers that had these letters, and they were playing whack-a-mole. Well, in September of 79, we found out that the, the Daily Californian in Berkeley, California had been slapped w- with a, a, a suit and the government said you can't print the Hansen letter. And uh, John Youngkerman who was a, a reporter for the, the Press Connection had that letter. And so they had to decide right away, do we print this thing or not? And so the, the discussions that went on Uh, were probably really scary things for a lot of people because, like you said, the the law could have come down really hard on this scrappy little strike paper in Madison, Wisconsin, but the government didn't know that we existed. So they decided, after a lot of discussion and turmoil, that we're going to print this thing. So they printed this eight-page extra. It's the only extra I think the Press could actually ever printed. And as soon as that came out, the government just threw up their hands and said, "We, you know, we couldn't stop the last one. And um, so then when we, I got, after I drove my bus route Monday morning, I went to the office, and it was just craziness. It was packed with reporters from all over the country, TV and newspapers and everything. And our editor at the time, Ron McRae, was inundated with, I mean, the pressure was just unbearable for a lot of people because we're not getting support from the establishment press. The Washington Post hated it. And Ron's picture shows up on the cover of Newsweek magazine, but that was owned by the Washington Post. And we were getting uh, huge amounts of criticism. I mean, they were I can imagine what kind of uh, letters and phone calls people were getting. But two days later, the Chicago Tribune, a very right-wing newspaper, printed the exact same thing, but theirs was an 18-page uh, special section on the Hansen letter. So they jumped on the um, Press Connection bandwagon right away. And had they published it first, we would have never had anything, we wouldn't have been involved with it at all. But once the cat was out of the bag, then the uh, Chicago Tribune published it. So I just think that, because the Press Connection was in competition with the two Madison Dailies, that this was a story that you just really didn't want to sit on. And they'd already been scooped by the Daily Cardinal of all papers at the University of Wisconsin. So, you know, there's... there's, And we... The Press Connection had the finest journalists in Madison at that time because they were all away from the state journal and the Cap Times. And so there's principle involved, there's uh, integrity involved, and guts, because it took a lot of guts for those people to go on strike and really give up their livelihoods. I mean, that was a very principled position that really changed their lives, either for the good or for the, or for worse. And so I think printing the the, uh, the Hansen letter was, wasn't was as stressful as going out on, on strike.
2: One of the issues around the Press Connections publication of this letter, and the government abandoning the case is that, you know, this case is working its way through the courts. There had just been oral arguments before a federal appellate court in Chicago uh, a couple weeks before, and the decision was expected there. And that decision would have established, presumably, as a matter of law that the government had overstepped, and its attempt to impose prior, prior restraint was abusive and, and incorrect. So, Brady, I'll I'll ask you the, the question did the uh, government's abandonment of the case was, was done to some extent um, out of opportunism. Rather than get clobbered by the courts, it said, OK, it's out now. We're going to let go. Uh, and so it was able to avoid a defeat in the court by virtue of this um, preemptive publication of, of the article, of the letter.
5: Looking at the case uh, as we had to and did from a litigator's standpoint. Uh, The three affidavits that Frank mentioned from these cabinet officers um, saying without equivocation what a threat this article was to the nation's security. Um, I don't think, Bill, we were uh, betting large amounts of money on our success. Uh, I thought we'd win in the Seventh Circuit. But in a way, and I'll I'll pick up Mike and Howard's point, um, the point was made without a judicial opinion from the Seventh Circuit. And we also always knew that the two most important cases that we rested our legal arguments on were not unanimous decisions. Uh, The Pentagon Papers was, in the sense of the result but there were always concurring opinions that said, well, we're not gonna say you can never restrain publication. So it was both a sense of relief, Bill, but also uh, disappointment, and and I would say a little more relief than disappointment.
2: (laughs) So Frank, why was the government so determined to block publication of this article? Did it really believe against all evidence that this was somehow a genuine threat to national security, or did it just see an opportunity to impose prior restraint and get away with it for future use?
4: That, that, that's a difficult question to answer, and I'm not sure I can answer it with certainty, but based on what, what I understand from the dynamics, the, the motivation for the case did not come from the Justice Department but came from the Department of Energy. And there's James Schlesinger, was basically the uh, the moveant behind the case. And he extracted from the Attorney General, from Griffin Bell, a commitment to go ahead with the case. Now, there's one kind of subpolitical fact that underlies all that, which isn't something thats is mo- that one normally reads about in the newspaper. And that is, there's always an ongoing tension among federal agencies who want independent litigating power. That is, the idea that the Justice Department represents the government, all government, the Department of Energy, the Department of Commerce, every government agency in the Supreme Court and in, in litigation in general, is, there's always some tension there. And I think that Griffin Bell had to be a little bit concerned that if he didn't go along with Schlesinger, Schlesinger would be able to lobby in Congress to maybe get an exemption from the, Depart- for the Department of Energy, as the Department of Labor has. There is an ex- On labor issues, labor can go to court for the United States. And I think that Griffin Bell was concerned that if he didn't go along with Schlesinger, uh, that might, there might be a second exception for the Energy Department. But I, I do believe that that there was no motivation within the Justice Department to, oh, at last we can establish a principle that we can uh, do a prior restraint on publication. I think the, you know, the impetus came from energy. And I think they genuinely felt that they were right. They Among their experts uh, was a man by the name of Hans Bethe, B-E-T-H-E. Uh, he is a, a, one of the great scientists of the 20th century. He's the man who figured out how the sun works. And we're not talking about an inco- inconsequential scientist. And beta was behind uh, behind this, the effort to enjoy publication of uh, to disseminate knowledge of how the H1 works. And I think that meant a lot to Schlesinger and to the people in the energy department. And I, 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 I do think they genuinely felt that it would injure the United States if, uh, you know, if if somebody else got nuclear weapon, thermonuclear weaponry. And of course, the you know the, the thing that we all have to acknowledge is that 40 years later, the thermonuclear weapons club has not expanded. In other words, they were wrong uh, when they said that. Yeah,
2: well, of course, I didn't predict it, but it never happened, of course. Okay. Um, Howard, one of the things that I discovered when I did my book that came out in in 1996 is that it was you who made available to the Press Connection the copy of the Hansen letter which um, ended the case. Do you regret that? Do you wish you had let the courts decide it? Uh, let me ask it even more open-ended. Do you, do you have any regrets? Other that or any other regrets about how the how the case played out <clears throat>
3: um, well this the story about how the Hanson letter was it was widely distributed. everybody who was involved in the case had a copy of the Hansen letter, except apparently John yuckerman at uh uh press connection, and I got a call from him and he said uh, the press connection would like to publish the uh or no i maybe he didn't say anyway he said he said, do you know where I can get a copy, how I can get a copy of the Hansen letter? And I said, uh, I think it's just been declared classified, and I'm afraid I can't help you at all, because I'm about to leave for lunch, I'm going to be gone exactly one hour, and when I get back, I expect my desk to look exactly like it looks now. <laughs> and it was, and so, how he got the thing, I don't know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> The uh, No, I, I mean, I don't have any regrets. I I was having so much fun, I wanted the case to go on forever. But I knew it was going to come to an end one way or the other. And I also knew that we were going to win, among other things, because the manuscript had been so widely distributed, there were copies of it all over the place. And uh, I knew that it would uh, come out. In fact, a woman named Helen Caldecott took, took a copy down to... Uh, Australia and started to have it published in Australia, and the the government sent two people down to Australia to tell the Australian nation, "Please do not publish this progressive magazine manuscript." And they gathered up the thing, but it, there was no there was no way it was going to stay under wraps forever. Um, <clears throat> I do have a, a comment about Hans Bethe um, when. Things were looking kind of bad for us, uh, in some eyes, anyway, because we had no real experts. We—if that's for me—tell them I'm busy. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, you know, the other guy, the other guys had uh, Hans Bethe, Nobel Prize. Physics guy, famous, and and the heads of, uh, s- of several cabinet members over, we had nobody who really knew what the actual secret was. And once our lawyers got Q clearances and learned the secret, they couldn't talk to us. <clears throat> um, but so it kind of looked bad for our side until Ray Kidder came along, uh, completely unexpected. He's a nuclear bomb designer at Livermore. Who was in charge of looking at all of the uh, bomb designs for one test series in the Pacific? They had to come into the office, show him the blueprints, tell him how it was going to work, and he had to decide whether this is going to work well enough to run the test or not. So he was, you know, an expert's expert, and he decided to come out on our side of the issue, and years later when I was talking to him in California, he said that during the, during the case in 1979, he had contacted Hans Bethe and said, I think you've been misled. I think I can convince you that this information is all in the public domain. And so they had an interchange back and forth that went throughout the summer of 1979. And in the end, Bethe conceded that Kidder was right and that he had been misled, and he was that his affidavit, which was cited as the star affidavit by the government, was in fact based on misinformation. And I had never heard any of this. I thought, wow, that's kind of interesting. I persuaded him to get the correspondence declassified and posted it online under the Federation of American Scientists website. You can read it if you want to, but I think it's a, a lo- interesting little anecdote from the whole
2: thing. So, Mike, one of the uh, interesting issues about the case was the hostility of some members of the media and, and others who Erwin, Noll, in, in particular, thought would be on the progressives' side. The Washington Post in particular was just really harsh in its condemnation of the magazine. And Irwin's personal hero, the I.F. Stone, who had uh, asked that Irwin take over his uh, I.F. Stone's Weekly uh, at at one point, uh, was also very acerbic in his denunciation of this exercise. Um, Talk about that, about just the harshness of the reaction from media and as you saw at the press connection from members of the public who thought that what happened here was an appalling act of irresponsibility and you know condemned it for all it was worth well
6: i think the aftermath for the press connection is that it 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 was an easy target to go after because it was this tiny little paper and so they could beat up on it as much as they wanted and so i think the press connection took a lot of of, of that heat when it really didn't deserve as much uh anger as it got, but the interesting thing is, and this is just a memory, and I may be wrong, but I watched public uh television and they, I think they had a thing called the Week in Review or something, and they had these journalists were all talking about the case. And they said, oh, and that stupid paper the Chicago Tribune published this thing after this scrappy little strike paper did. And I thought, well, that's interesting because how establishment can you be but be the Chicago Tribune? and so the liberal press in Washington was really easy to condemn them as supporting the press connection. And I'm glad you mentioned have Stone, because apparently later on, I think it's in your book, he came around to say that uh, he had changed his mind somewhat. Cause it, but think about the kind of pressure and that people, you know, these are personal stories where individuals are sitting there trying to decide, how do I behave in this situation? And, you know, there's the old saying, it's ordinary people doing extraordinary things. And imagine what it was like in 1979 at the Press Connection By that time, the strike had been two years old. Nothing was being settled. People couldn't afford to work for the small wages that they were getting at the Press Connection, so they were starting to leave. And in fact, the paper folded in January of 1980. And so we ran out of money, and uh, the Press Connection had the strange uh, initials PC. And so consequently... Uh, there were some ads that the press connection was running after this happened that in, uh, enraged some of the left in Madison, and so they would pick at the press connection, and so the turmoil, I think, along with a lot of other stuff, especially financial stuff, finally brought an end to the to the press connection's uh, existence. But I, think... because in in Bill's book, and I recommend you read it because his. His uh, chapters on I had to go back and read all of his chapters on this because I wanted to make sure I knew what I was talking about, but he did talk about there 's a picture here where everybody at the progressive is is popping champagne corks and celebrating the fact that they can now print this thing, and that was irwin 's initial reaction, but then he soon thought, just like you said bill that we should have taken this all the way to the Supreme Court and then we wouldn't have this thing that's hanging over our head.
2: Actually, Erwin, late in his life, had a different um, conclusion about the case. He said often that uh, he wished that he had it to do over again, in which case he would, as the British say, publish and be damned. In other words, he would have defied the government's injunction and gone ahead with publication. Brady, would that have been a good idea?
5: (laughs) I do recall discussing that with Erwin <laughs> and, and the consequences of it. Once a federal judge enters a restraining order, the issue then becomes, will you obey an order of a federal court? Where you still have a whole panoply of due process rights. And And one of the reasons that I said the progressive case only has a partial legacy, is that literally with the internet, um, you know, Howard, at that point in time, there were 50 people that probably had their hands on your article before anybody published it. And with the press of a button, it would have not only gone to Australia, it would have gone everywhere. Um, But I still think there are uh, legal dimensions of the case and the prosecution. Uh, that do cast the shadow of, of national security journalism
2: today. Frank, I have a question for you. Is there a secret that you can uh, think of a, where something that a person could discover through normal avenues of inquiry might deserve the protection of the government, might deserve the claim of secrecy? I'm thinking of, like, the patterns that are available for uh, making uh, 3D laser printer guns. Uh, is there something that is so sensitive that the government should be able to say, no, you cannot publish?
4: I, uh, it's hard for me to come up with that because my, my whole mindset is a generation earlier. The Near versus Minnesota thing, the troop shift, or what the Chicago Tribune did, had they done it two days earlier, World War II might have turned out felt it would have been longer that we, we, the United States, had broken the Japanese code. And knowing that, we the Battle of Midway, which was the turning point battle in the Pacific, ended up the way it did. Had that information been published uh, one or two days earlier, the war would have gone on much longer, because we wouldn't have had air, suprem- air supremacy in, in the Pacific, which was, a, as you all know, a battle of a series of islands extending from Japan down almost to Australia. So with this kind of old-fashioned mindset, yes, I can think of things, but in terms of today, uh, if I came up with it, I have Brady's problem. Namely, that whoever's got it can send it to the world in no time. So it's hard for me to imagine this issue coming up today. Howard, I've got... Oops, sorry. Let me just add a quick point. It's not that the government...
5: Uh, wouldn't want to suppress a certain category of of secret information. It is the government's literal inability, in an internet age, I'm accepting China, uh, to to prevent the dissemination of virtually anything.
2: Indeed, uh, Howard. One last question for you, and we can have a question or two from the audience. You told me years back that you believe that the progressive case helped change public attitudes toward secrecy claims to where people uh, today consider the cult of military secrecy as a thing to be ridiculed. How does this shift in attitudes play out today? Do you think that's still true, and, and how does that present itself?
3: Um. You should have asked me this question last night, and I would have thought about it,
2: <laughs> have an answer. <laughs> well, give us your thoughtless answer. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> um,
3: I don't know. In the meantime, let me mention a little James Schlesinger anecdote. 15 years ago at, at the Cardozo Law School symposium, which, which he was a, a major speaker, he was the one who caused us to go to court. Um, I, I gave him a copy of my book, signed it, and we had a friendly chat. And uh, about an hour later or something, he came back and he said, You have another copy of your book? If so, sign one for Lynn Coleman. And when you sign it, say, Thanks for no criminal prosecution. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> um, I didn't really think that was much of a, a problem there. Um,
2: who, who is Lynn it, Coleman?
3: what who lynn coleman who he he was one, he was one of the uh i don't know if he was working for energy or justice but he was one of the top energy yeah, he he was the, one of the top lawyers and had a a major role in deciding what happened um i think i've i think about the uh the three d printer with plastic guns and that sort of thing um and i don 't know what I don't know what to say about that i i 'd like to think that nobody could print a plastic gun off their you know 3 d printer and then take it on an airplane but i like Brady said i don 't know how you can uh, prevent anything from going out on the internet these days so it it seems like uh, I think everybody understands that that anything can be public now um we, uh, I mean, I still hear people talking about, you know, spies who who shared secrets or whatever. But I'm, it doesn't seem to have the same uh, impact that it did during the Cold War, when people believed. I mean, this this H bomb secret to me, it was analogous to the secret of Samson's hair. We had a superpower, and it was based on knowledge of a secret, and if anybody else knew this secret, then we, they could nullify our superpower, like Delilah could cut off Samson's hair, and he was no longer the strongest man on earth. And I don't think anybody believes that sort of thing anymore.
4: I don't think it was valid then because the Soviets had the age bomb.
2: Yeah. So any questions from the audience? We have about five minutes.
0: Yeah. Uh, Well, Uh, my name is Rob McRae, and I was the editor of the Press Connection uh, then. And uh, and I this this story has haunted me for 40 years. It was uh, uh, certainly uh, the most traumatic uh, experience I have ever had, and because uh, although I was actually not consulted before this project got underway. Uh, George Vichelic and some others put this team together. And, uh, but I, my name was going to be up there as editor, so I had to decide whether to resign then and there or go forward with it, and I decided that I would stick with it. Uh, and I wrote, the one contribution I made was a very understated headline for that paper, which was A Citizen Rights to a Senator, because I thought, I'm not sure what I understand about this article, but I know that we have to pin our hopes on the First Amendment. And so we have to make our constitutional claim and hope that it, that it works, that it's persuasive. Uh, and then, of course, when the, uh, hate mail and hate calls and death threats actually started arriving, I was forced to move out of my apartment for several days out of fear. And, uh, and it was also scary to be in the office. We were all quite frazzled at that point in our strike career, and we knew the end was near. And we are... So this was a very, very difficult experience for us. Uh, and <clears throat> I just wanted to, I'm here today in part to, to thank Frank Kirkheimer and Brady for doing whatever they did to keep us from getting prosecuted Uh, because I was well aware that we could face many years of prison time. In fact, we could have been in prison for the last 40 years. Uh, And and frankly, I don't know if we did anything like this today that we could count on not being prosecuted, uh, that the climate has changed a great deal, and I think that there is still a risk um, of doing something like this today. I also want to say that I think that the I regret the whole project in a way because I think the, pro- the premises were bad and uh, the whole procedure was uh, poorly thought through in the sense that you never had a reasonable chance of convincing the public that this was a responsible act by the press. You're going to damage the press if you did this. And it did not help, uh, unlike our headline. Your headline was actually misleading the H-bomb secret, no quotation marks around secret. How we got it, why we're telling it. So you're actually reinforcing the idea that you have a secret and that you're betraying the secret. Uh, you're not saying the headline, which it should have been, the H-bomb has no secrets. But that wouldn't have been as provocative. But once you've provoked this, and remember the climate of opinion then was, what, what did the public know about nuclear weapons? They knew the fear they had grown up with in the Cold War. They knew about the Rosenbergs. You know, that was the only thing that really, and, and as far as I can tell, no discussion of nuclear proliferation was ever, uh, ever stopped by, the, by being unable to discuss the technology of the weapons. Uh, the, 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 the nuclear freeze movement of the 80s and because of nuclear winter, which everyone could grasp and get a hold of, was what really fired up the anti-nuclear movement and not any discussion about how bad a bomb was. So, I'd like to stir the pot even more, but I'll leave it there. Okay,
2: well thank you. Thanks to our panelists for uh, their perspectives and for sharing them. Uh, I would like to uh, invite you all to go home with copy or copies of this flyer Uh, And to invite you to a reception that the progressive magazine is holding tonight from 530 to 730 at the Central Library Jim Hightower the great Jim Hightower will uh, be there and you are all welcome and thank you all for coming
0: This podcast has been brought to you by Exact Sciences Corporation, the makers of Colaguard. Once again, be sure to learn more at exactsciences.com.